Good morning, everyone. Alan's going to open our class with prayer for us this morning. Thank you, dear Father, for a beautiful Sabbath day. We appreciate very much being able to come together on your day to take a moment away from the world and contemplate your character and your love for us. Be with uh, Tim today. Help him to bring us more light. Pray for everybody collectively and individually in our group and those that are not here. Bring them back safely. And thank you very much for being who you are and what you've done for us. Amen. Amen. And we want to wish a special uh, happiness to the mothers this weekend. Is this Mother's Day weekend? Yes. Yes, it is. Better be. (laughs) That's my understanding. Okay. Uh, Today we're doing lesson number eight in our quarterly, The Wonder of Jesus. And the title of the lesson this week is The Intensity of His Walk. And somebody read for us the memory verse there. It's a very short memory verse. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. That's in First John. First John. And how did Jesus walk is the question. Okay, First John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his, down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Does that give us a clue of how Jesus walked? Somebody read for us First John 4, 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Do these texts give us some insight in how Jesus walked? How do we take these texts and apply them to our lives today? We have to walk through the meaning of what's being said here. What's the meaning of love? Well, he walked in union with God, is what my Bible says, in union with God, and God's character is love, and love um, is, is shown by loving one another, or caring for each other, or being part of their lives, or um, more concretely, helping each other. Okay, so love is the principle of giving, the principle of beneficence, the principle of other-centered interest and welfare and the good and happiness of others, rather than seeking to protect self or promote self. Yeah, so did, did you see in Jesus' life that he actually walked the walk of love? That all of his energy, power, time was always focused on helping others, lifting up others, healing others, restoring others. He wasn't self-focused, even when he was being done wrong. Notice, notice our reflexive reaction. Does anybody, of course... How many of us have had somebody cheat us, say something unfair about us, do something wrong to us? And have we ever had a reaction? It's not fair. (laughs) Now, when Christ is being beaten, crucified, humiliated, tortured, did you hear him say things like, Father, it's just not fair. I mean, all I've ever done is heal the sick and raise the dead and feed the hungry and, and just not fair how they're treating me. I don't deserve this at all. We never heard that come from him, did we? No. His response was, where was his focus? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, they think they're killing me. 
they're actually cutting themselves off from their only source of healing. Mother, this is your son. John, this is your mother. Who is he concerned with? Yeah, others. He's concerned with others. I mean, even when he's being done wrong, his focus is still on others. Is that a lesson for how we should walk? Yeah. As we think about that, what do you think this phrase, we can't really pass by it, um, in the First John passage there that says, um, sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How do you understand the meaning of those words? The atoning sacrifice for our sins. Very common words used. But what do they mean? Well, the way you describe atoning is always at one, you know, like it, it was, you know, it brings us all together. It gives us a clear understanding so that we can all be in unison and have the same, like, understand God's character for what it really is. Okay, so atoning is coming into at one minute. Is it, is it coming into at one minute or unity as you're shift because I said it? In other words, well, Dr. Jennings said it, so it must be true. No, 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 no. You just gave an explanation. <laughs> right, right, right. And, I, and I'm, I'm pointing that out, that, that no one should ever believe anything because I say it. Amen. Okay? Seriously. Absolutely. No one should believe it because I say it. Um, so we, we need to understand the evidences and reasons behind it. And so the word atone. The word atone is an English word that is in the King James Bible in one place. And in, in, in 1611, the word atone had a different meaning than it has today. You know, we've had that experience in our own lifetime. There used to be a word that meant um, happy and joyful called gay. And that word means something different. So we had to change the name of one of our camps from Camp Cumbie Gay to, you know, Cotta Springs, right? Because the word changed meaning. Well, that word atone changed meanings too. Back in 1611, the word really meant it was a, it was a verb, O-N-E, not a noun. We have a noun, O-N-E, one. But there's a verb, O-N-E. Two people are at odds. A husband and wife aren't getting along. Uh, friends are no longer talking to each other. And you say, you know what? I'm going to go over and one them. Say It's a verb, an action word to bring them back into unity, to bring them back at one. And so I'm going to, and that evolved into, I'm going to at one them. I'm going to at one them. At one, I'm going to atone them. I'm going to bring them back into unity, at back into oneness. Now, I've got the, uh, I didn't bring it with me today because I didn't know we'd talk about this, but I uh, have the uh, Oxford English Dictionary in my office. It's a 20-volume dictionary and gives the etymology of these words and it's all documented in there and so when we think about atonement at one that bringing back into unity bringing back into oneness that's exactly what it means so so with that meaning of the word atoning it's a unifying sacrifice now the other scriptures support this can you give me any other scriptures that talk about coming back into oneness through christ john. okay john John 17, Father, I pray that, that they will be one as you and I are one, you and me, me and them, all of us at one. Exactly. That's a great one. Jesus is praying. And so some people say, well, Jesus never talked about the atonement. Of course he did. He talked about the unity and the oneness that he wants us all to have. What about Ephesians when it says that he will bring all things uh, in the universe back under one head? Jesus Christ. Okay? It's union. Unity, oneness, atonement. So, with that, so we have other scriptures to support our understanding of this. And so, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Does it make a difference when you hear this verse to hear it as a reconciling, a unifying, the, the means of bringing us back into one versus an appeasement, a payment, an expiation, a propitiation? Does it make a difference if you think God sent his son to appease, to assuage his wrath, to take care of anger and vengeance, or he sent his son as the means of bringing us all back into unity? Does that change your perspective? Yeah, it's huge. 
huge difference. And so the question then remains, okay, if he, if he sent his son as the, the means of bringing us back into unity, what was going on there? What was happening? And I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to develop that more as we, as we go through our class today. Okay, so somebody read the last two paragraphs. We're going to continue on with the, with the thoughts we're, we're working on. Last two paragraphs, they're uh, beginning... In the end, we see him manhandled by Roman soldiers. Quote, they put a purple, purple robe on him, they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. Then they led him out to crucify him. <clears throat> what, what prepares a person to endure such physical and psychological abuse without cracking? How does a person remain steadfast and calm when the whole world turns against them, with not a shred of visible human support in sight? For Jesus, the answer lay in his communion with God and the intensity of his walk with him, which forms the subject of this week's lesson. And so the thoughts, what is it that does prepare someone to handle such abuse and mistreatment? I mean, don't we, as a church, generally teach that there'll be a time of tribulation, a time of trial, a time of trouble? And, and are we, how are we prepared to handle such things? Knowing the 27 fundamentals forward and backwards? Hopefully we'll know who Jesus is so that we know that we can trust him whatever happens at that time. So, okay, good. I like that. Well, I just think all through Paul's writings, he speaks about in him, in Christ, in Christ, which is really through the Holy Spirit in us, Moment by moment. Let's develop that thought in him. Because that in him is used in several different ways, isn't it? There's the in him, I've accepted my payment, and now my name is hidden with Jesus in him in heaven. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see me because I'm in him. I was in Christ when Christ died on the cross, and all my sins were put on him and paid at the cross. And You see, isn't it used that way? Yes, it is. But it came out of, I think, a lot of that out of Reformation theology after the... The meaning you, you referred to, um, Lutherans, others, and of course, unfortunately, a lot of our own church and, and seminarians have followed those Reformation theology, and so they have this, this atonement. So when Jesus prayed in John 17, I pray that they will be in me as I am in you, see, as I am in you. See, was Jesus using the I'm in the Father and the Father's in me in some sense of payment, appeasement, propitiation type thought? No. And that's what Jesus defined it as. When we talk about being in Jesus, we have to let Jesus tell us it's being in Jesus like Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. Now, how is that? How do we understand it that way? How is Jesus in the Father and the Father in Jesus? They're one person. They're one. Yeah. One in union of? Mind. Mind. Heart. Thought. Purpose, attitude, motivation, methods, principles. They love what each other loves. They value what each other values. That's this union we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. It's a big difference. So, think about a soldier in a combat situation. What do you think motivates a soldier in live fire? Is there any, anybody serve in the military besides me? Wow. I was a division psychiatrist for the 24th and the 3rd Infantry Division. And one of, the, one of the issues is maintaining a fighting force. What is it that motivates a soldier to get up out of cover 
Cover is when you're protected and a bullet or a shrapnel can't hit you because you're behind a brick wall. Concealment is when you're hidden from view, but they can, a bullet can still get through like you're behind some shrubs. So cover, they're, they're undercover, they're protected. What, what, uh, what motivates a soldier to get out from undercover and expose himself to live fire, guns, shrapnel, exploding shells around him? What would cause a soldier to do that? See, it's not, it's not, well, you know, devotion to country. It's not uh, thinking of family back home and protecting them from the Nazis or the communists or the Taliban or whoever it might be. It's exactly what these, they're saying. It's love. And, and in military terms, that love is referred to as cohesion and morale. And it's that camaraderie, that, that bond between fellow soldiers. You care about the people you serve with. And that love overcomes your fear for self and causes you to put yourself in harm's way to help another. Perfect love casts out all fear. We, we're not self-referenced when we care about others more than ourselves. Yes? Following up on that, I, on the news, uh, it was a couple months ago, President Bush gave a, the President the Congressional Medal of Honor to a soldier posthumously who had a live grenade had come in the tent, and, and in order to spare his, his fellow comrades from shrapnel, he fell on the grenade and gave his life mm-hmm. for, uh, to protect his other soldiers. And there's no human force that, that would make someone do that. It, it has to be the gift of the love through the Holy Spirit. And this opens up the discussion of the battle that is the root battle between God and Satan in every heart and mind on this planet. And that is the battle between those two antagonistic principles of love for others versus fear and selfishness. Fear on this planet. You see, fear, that emotion of fear, that emotion of insecurity, is the emotion we are born infected with. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. afraid. See, fear is not part of God's creation. It's part of the infection of sin. Perfect love casts out all Fear. Part of the healing process is to purge our hearts from fear that we're no longer afraid for self. Remember, those that are ready to meet Jesus when they come are described as these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Revelation 12. They're not afraid for self anymore. Fear has been cast out. The only power in the universe that can do that is the the power of love. So think about this motivation of fear that we all struggle with. When the economy gets tough, when finances get tight, when the house payments aren't being made, when we're several months behind, uh, what feelings do we get? Do we get fear? Do we get anxiety? Are we then tempted by our feelings? James chapter 1, no one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. So will those feelings lead us to temptation? Those feelings of anxiety and fear and, and, and distress and fear of financial fear and fear of what people think about us, fear of, bank, fear of bankruptcy, fear of, fear of what, uh, uh, losing all that we've worked for. And so some people act on those feelings and act selfishly and cheat on their taxes to get a little extra money or steal from people or sell drugs to make money on the side to, to, uh, to, in order to, to watch out for self, all looking out for self. But at times like these... What is really going on is the opportunity to overcome the infection we were all born with. An opportunity to go ahead and say to God, I don't want to live in fear anymore. I don't want to live dominated by fear anymore. I don't want to act selfishly and live selfishly anymore. And in trust, put your 
future, the outcomes, the things that you can't see, because we're in fear only because of our finiteness and inability to see what tomorrow holds. And only in trust and love for God can we overcome the fear and make a choice to say, I'm going to do what's healthy and loving and giving and beneficent, even though I'm afraid of what's happening to me. This is an opportunity, this battle with self that we all struggle with. Are we going to let fear continue to control? Are we going to stand up and do what we know is healthy and right, even if it's uncomfortable to do? And as we do that, we grow. The Holy Spirit heals. The character gets transformed. We get regenerated, and fear gets cast out. I had a patient who came to see me with constant anxiety, worry. She would be diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder because she worried all the time, couldn't relax, ruminates all the time. And she particularly was worried about what other people thought of her. She would go into social situations, would feel incredibly tense, would think people were looking at her, would think people would worry about her, would would hate this type of thing. And and hated most of all if she would ever be singled out in a group where people would actually have the focus come and look at her and be the center of attention, would hate, hate, hate that most of all, would avoid that like the plague. Well, her daughter got engaged. And as the wedding day was getting closer, her tensions and anxieties became more and more severe because you understand at the wedding, there's a part where the mother gets walked down the aisle where everybody is looking at her. And all her anxieties were building to the point that she was actually contemplating not even going to the wedding because she was so overwhelmed, she was becoming paralyzed. She didn't want to get out of her house with all this anxiety. Now, you tell me, what's the problem? What's the diagnosis? What's the root issue going on here? Self-reference, self-focus. It's all about me. So, the solution. What's the treatment for this? Think about others. Think about the daughter. (laughs) That's exactly right. And so I asked her some questions. I said, "Um, whose day is this? Whose special day is this? Well, my daughter's. Who are you thinking about? Me. I said, have you considered thinking about what it would mean for your daughter for you to be there, right up front, supporting her, encouraging her to share this special time with her, versus what it would mean for your daughter if you weren't there. How would it hit your daughter if you weren't there for her wedding? Oh, I never thought about that. And I said, why don't you try taking the focus off you and make this day a special day that you're going to give of yourself to do everything you can to make this this most special day in your daughter's life. She came back after the wedding and said, Oh, Dr. Jan, I've never had anything like it. I walked down. I wasn't even scared. I wasn't worried. I wasn't anxious because the whole time I was just thinking about how wonderful this is going to be for my daughter. Praise the Lord. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, I've given you this example before, but, but parents in the room, if you were walking along and uh, your child toddled out into the street and a car was about to hit them and you had enough time to run out there and shove them out of the way, but you would get hit, what would you do? Do it. Absolutely. But, but if you were walking along all by yourself, what's the chances you would step in front of a car? No. No. You see, you, you have this fear. It would be, it would, you, your emotion, if you're out there alone in the street and you see a car coming to hit you, is this fear. But suddenly you're willing to put yourself in front of that car and you're not afraid to do it. Why are you not afraid to do it? Because you love your child. Because love casts out fear. And the only power in the universe that fe- rids our hearts of fear is the power of love. And that's why God can't heal us by the use of might and power. It's not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and love. All right, Sunday's lesson. Let's read um, Luke 2, 39 through 52. Luke 2, 39 through 52. 
When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the children grew and became strong. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it, thinking... He was in their company. They traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The last sentence. Let's kind of just read that last sentence again. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Mm-hmm. Um. As we think about this, this, this is basically, I had to read the whole section because that's the entire 30 years of Jesus' first 30 years of life right there. The first 30 years of Jesus' life was just described for you, the scriptural record. Everything else we have after that is from his baptism forward. Now, we didn't get a lot of detail there, did we? No, not a lot of detail at all. Uh, so what happened during those first 30 years? What was going on in Jesus' life during those first 30 years? What was Jesus doing? Let's put it that way. What was Jesus doing during those first 30 years? Studying and developing, developing his character. Developing, I heard two people say developing character. What was... Yes? In the verse before she started, the 40th, it said he became strong, he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That's yes. That's what it was talking about up to this point, anyway. That was the verse just before it started, this temple story. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Same, same type of thing. The word grace, the word favor in the Greek are the same. Um, so, during this period of time, what was Jesus' mission? When he came to earth as a baby, what was his purpose in coming here? Reveal the Father. And that was it? It was part of it. That was, that was the primary purpose, he said. And Ellen White said the same thing, the primary mission. But the secondary included me, me, me. Okay. Well, what's bothered me all these years in this is how difficult it is raising children in this world today, and we all raise children. Why in the world we weren't given some instruction through Christ's early life, what it was like raising him? Well, do you think Christ um, was just like all children? Well, no, but still. No. I mean, he was human too. Yes, he was. Um, you, you mentioned to reveal the Father. Was that his mission or was that his method? Well, what was the problem It was part of his mission. I completed the work you gave me to do. I have made you known. It was the mission to secure the universe and save mankind. And to provide healing for us. Part of it. Wasn't the mission, or is the mission primary about revelation? Or is the revelation a means to complete the mission, secure the universe, and save mankind? If it was primarily revelation, then it would be self-focusing. Exactly. Yeah, he had a, he, his mission was to heal and protect. 
It's love. Love is, love is out to, to restore, to heal, to build up, to protect, to nurture. And so he, God is love. His son came in the world to heal the damage of sin, to secure the universe unfallen. We have Bible texts for that. Anybody have a Bible text that talks about Christ's mission for angels? If I be lifted up, There's a good one. Now's the judgment of this world. Now it's the time uh, for um, Satan to be cast out. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. Now, the word men in your Bible is supplied. It's not in the Greek. So all will be drawn. What about Colossians? In Colossians 1, 18 through 20, it says that um, all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. And 1 Corinthians 4, 9 talks about that we are put on display before the universe as a spectacle, a theater unto angels and to men. And Peter talks about the angels long to look into these things. So, did the angelic host... This is an interesting question, because some have suggested that the angels needed exactly what we needed, or we needed exactly what the angels needed. The angels needed the revelation of the truth about God to combat the lies that Satan told, to secure them in their loyalty and faithfulness through all eternity. There's truth in that. Is that all mankind needed? A revelation of truth? No. Mankind need more. Angels did not fallen. They didn't need to be healed. Yeah, angels did need recreation, restoration, regeneration, rebuilding up, uh, the character of Christ rewritten in. Angels did need the new covenant of I will write my law in your hearts and minds. It was already in their hearts and minds. Unfallen angels. Mankind needed more. They needed the revelation of truth to win back to trust. But they needed the perfect character of God restored within. Character rebuilt. Now, who of us could do that? Didn't we need to see it in action? Like, we needed an example of it, just not, like, mental... So during the first 30 years of his life, somebody said, two of y'all said he was building character. He grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. Was his divinity growing? He's the God-man. Was his divinity growing in knowledge and favor and stature? Divinity was growing? Or was humanity growing? I mean, the, the, He came as a baby knowing nothing about where he came from. Well, it's important to make that distinction. Was the divine, infinite God somehow deficient lacking understanding in some area that he needed to come become a human in order for him to learn something he didn't know. You know, that is suggested by some. His time in Egypt. And that's why the we have a faithful high priest, Jesus, who can empathize and understand our difficulties because he suffered on earth and, and he's there to communicate to the Father what he now knows that the Father doesn't really appreciate fully because the Father was never human. And the Father needs to learn from his Son and the Son needed to learn through experience. What does that say about God? You haven't heard those suggestions? Think about the, 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 I mean, it's really kind of horrible to say, isn't it? That God had to become a human in order for him to learn something he didn't already know. I think it's a, a risk God took. He took a lot of risk to, uh, to reach man. And I think Paul says, why then the law? And he says, because you needed it. God didn't need it. God the Father and the Son were united in this, in their picture. But he has to reach fallen men. And so he reaches him through many different, he says, various and sundry ways. So we're in agreement that it was not his, his divinity that got tempted or his divinity that grew, right? Yes, Linda. Oh, you know, uh, 
Isaiah was, some people believe Isaiah was sort of God writing in the in instruction book for Jesus. If you read Isaiah, if you were Jesus, read, trying to reprogram yourself to your mission and so on, having been born, Isaiah would, uh, some feel, is that sort of reprogramming book that showed him what his life was going to be like and what his mission was. If you read Isaiah from that perspective, it's really interesting that God provided the young child with an instruction book that was laying out his life and his mission and so on. How do you reprogram yourself if you know you're going to become a human, you're, everything you know is going to be wiped out, how would you do that? And so again, you're suggesting it was, it's humanity that grew, not as divinity. Well, no, no, because uh, as he began to understand his mission and as he spent time with God, most likely his understanding of his divinity grew as well. So you're saying he, his divinity learned new things? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> no, is I, it, think, I think that with it may be what you were saying earlier that uh, that God doesn't need that kind of understanding, but we need that understanding of God. That right. He understands our perspective. So when the Bible talks about Jesus growing in wisdom and stature, it's talking about his humanity growing in wisdom and stature <laughs> and becoming aware of the divinity. He right. Understanding of divinity. He had to learn about it, but it always existed. So why did Jesus have to, the question then for our salvation and for this whole mission, why did Jesus have to come like this? I mean, could we conclude that, that it happened the way it happened because it was necessary for some reason? We may not understand the reason, but it was necessary. Can we make that conclusion? God wouldn't have done it this way if there was another way to do it better. Is that fair to say? Okay. Because I asked that question because remember, Jesus came as a human to Abraham. Remember? He showed up here in human form to Abraham, and they actually cooked him some food, and Jesus ate the food, remember? Why, why couldn't Jesus just simply come like he did to Abraham as a man of 30 years of age, start his ministry, do all the miracles, um, get, you know, heal the sick, raise the dead, everything the same from 30 years on, comes, just appears as a man of age 30, gets baptized, and the whole thing's the same, gets crucified. Why would that not have worked? Because then people wouldn't have challenged his being a divine being. You would have been set apart because he wouldn't have experienced the, you know, being raised as a child and all going through childhood. And it was the development of his character. Yes. What, is, what do you understand that to mean, development of character? Can character be created by divine fiat? Can God just simply create character? No. <clears throat> yes. What about Adam? He was not born as a baby. Was... And did he have mature, developed, godly character? Or was he... Pardon? I would assume he did. No, that, no, he did not. He clearly didn't. That's why, that's, that's why he fell. He was born perfect without sin, but his character remained undeveloped, and character is developed based on the choices we make. And this is one of the reasons the tree was put in the garden. If the tree had never been put in the garden, see, a lot of people put, think that the tree was put in the garden there for, for, for Adam to be tripped up, for Adam to be, you know, confounded. No, the tree was there for Adam's development of character. If he was never presented with opportunities to make independent, individual choices, to present the issues, think it through, and come to his own conclusion and say, no, I reject that, I choose this. And think about your own life experience. Think about when each of us have been presented with, with tempta tempting situations, and we've made choices either to say no to the temptation and move in the healthy direction, or we embrace the temptation and bring that sin into our lives. Don't we get changed by that? 
Yes. And Adam, if he would have said no in the garden, would have developed character. He had the ability because he didn't have any internal selfishness. He didn't have any internal fear, no internal temptations to act in self-interest. He was a perfectly loving being, but he was an undeveloped being. He was immature in his character. And so he had to decide which character would he develop. Would he develop character based on selfless love, truth, godly principles? Would he believe the lies and develop character based on fear and selfishness? He chose the lies. And so his character got warped. And so Christ came actually to reveal the truth, surely all the truths, we can list all those truths in just a moment, but to reverse the damage that Adam had caused to the species, to actually fix it, heal it, regenerate it, recreate it, to actually rewrite into the species known as human God's perfect character of love. And put my law in their hearts and minds. And, and that can't be declared. It actually has to be wrought out, chosen. And so this is why as soon as he was baptized, I was going to ask the question. As soon as Christ was baptized, the Holy Spirit inspired him to go somewhere. Where? To be tempted. To the desert to do what? To be tempted. What was that about? It was for Christ to actually uh, confront and overcome in his humanity temptations to act in self-interest. To restore and overwrite selfish temptation with loving principles. God's principles of love. And that's what he was doing by his own choices. Yes? But when you say in his humanity, you don't mean that by the power of his humanity. You mean as he was human, he allowed the power of God to help him make those choices. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it's, it wasn't the humanity that... No, no, no. It was Christ in, in a faith relation with God choosing as, a, as in his humanity... Yeah. And not tapping into his own divine power. Right. But tapping into his father's oh. divine Sure, absolutely. He constantly walked in faith and trusted his That's father. That's what he was doing for 40 days. Yeah. Yes. Before he was tempted. That's right. He was gathering the strength. Even though he didn't gather physical strength, he gathered spiritual and emotional strength. And then you see the same thing in Gethsemane. If you really want to see this, Gethsemane, I think, is a much better revelation than, than the wilderness experience. But the wilderness experience prepared him for Gethsemane. If he didn't walk through the wilderness experience successfully, Gethsemane would have never happened. But in Gethsemane, did Christ experience powerful feelings to avoid the cross, to save himself, to not die? Well, where did those feelings come from? Do you think divinity was tempting him that way? No, divinity is perfect love. God cannot be tempted by evil, it says in James. So it's not coming from his divinity. It's coming from his humanity. These were his own feelings. These weren't external temptations of somebody outside him. He had feelings tempting him in this direction. Emotions, passions. But feelings are not, excuse me, temptation is not sin. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.15 that he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. Are you tempted by your feelings? Yes, Christ was tempted by his feelings. The difference is that Christ, and if you think about this incredible thing, from childhood, from birth on, never even in thought did he give in to a feeling to act selfishly or even think selfishly, even though he's tempted in every way like we are. Now, is that incredible? It's amazing, yes. What is character? Is it just a habit? Is it, I mean... Um... What is character? Some might say your identity, your true self, who you really are in nature, in motive. It's not habit. It's not simply habit. No, no, no. Is it what you do when no one's watching? Some, some might say that. 
but it is really your motive, your method, your principle, your your. How I mean, what is maturing as we mature our characters? Yes, and each one of us have this opportunity. But what is it that's maturing? You mean which part of your brain? Well, that, and that's, I guess that's part of my question. Is this a physiologic thing that's maturing? <clears throat> Inseparable. Inseparable. Your, your identity cannot function off the substrate of your brain. When you look out at the sky and say, man, what a beautiful blue sunny day today, blue sky and sunny day, there is a physiological activity happening. Certain neural circuits are firing in order for you even to be aware and process that information. So when you are thinking about any subject matter, when you make any choice, there is a physiological activity happening in your brain. You can't separate the two. I, I guess my question is, is character physiological? Um, no. See, um, we had... Uh, because the, the metaphor would be one of hardware-software. Okay? The brain is the hardware. The mind-slash-character is software. For instance, each of us have English software packages. Those were uploaded after birth onto the hardware. The, the hardware was receptive to that, but it could have been receptive to German, could have been receptive to Chinese, could have been receptive to French. I mean, all this, the hardware was not directing which language was uploaded into the hardware. And still today, you can change your language and, and learn another language, if, if you so wish. Uh, but yet you can't learn a language if you don't have the proper brain circuits to do it with. So, so the brain circuits are, are necessary, but they don't determine what language you learn. Likewise, character is the same way. You can't develop a character if you don't have a brain. If you're born anencephalic, you can never develop a character. If you have a body but no brain, there's no character that can develop. But the brain doesn't determine what character is developed. Experience. After you have made choices over and over again, your, your synapses and your circuits are bent. That's right. We have certain bents and certain predilections, but that doesn't mean we're uh, permanently wired that way unless we have acted in such a way so long that we've destroyed a, two faculties, capacity for reason and conscience. Now, if we've acted in so long in such a way that those faculties are actually destroyed, we don't have them anymore. We don't have a conscience. We don't have ability to reason then we're beyond reach. And that's what's called in the Bible the sin, of, sin against the Holy Spirit. Some call the Holy, uh, the unpardonable sin. Because God reaches us through truth and love. And if our conscience cannot be convicted by the Holy Spirit, because we don't have one, and if we don't have the capacity to understand and see truth when it's right before our eyes, God can't reach us. But as long as that happens, bad habits still can be transformed. In Revelation, it talks about a time in which God says um, that the righteous will be remain righteous and... We talk about being sealed. Yes. To me, that sounds like a almost physiologic state in which you have, it has become a pattern, and so you do not deviate from that pattern when, when presented with different stimuli. I wouldn't uh, suggest it was a physiological derivative. It would be a, a, a characterologic derivative, meaning that you have been so settled in the truth in your beliefs, in your values, in your understanding, that you would rather die than act against those values and beliefs. And it's not because you have, somebody has come in and wired you this way. It's because you have chosen to value these principles more than you value your own life. Tim? Yeah. Yes? Take it one step further. Into heaven, how does sin not arise again? Is it because we've somehow been locked into a physiologic state that where we can't change? Or is it because, like you've said, we so understand his character and we so trust him that there would absolutely be no reason 
to choose anything. Well, we've been so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that we can't be moved. Now, I t- uh, this is very important, this, this discussion for many of my patients. You have patients who have physiologic illness of their brain, schizophrenics, bipolars, so forth. And some of them are distressed and worried because they have these symptoms that maybe their faith isn't strong enough. Maybe that it's going to be a barrier to their salvation, so forth and so on. And I point out to them that the Bible promises us renewed minds here and now. We can have the mind of Christ. We can have the law of God written in the heart and mind here and now. But we don't get new brains until the second coming when the mortal puts on immortality and this corruption puts on incorruption. And so a person with schizophrenia can still love others, can still be honest, can still be uh, giving, can still be um, uh, loyal and faithful and so forth. And a person without any mental illness at all can be quite manipulative, exploitive, deceitful, and self-centered. And so character is about the, the value set of the individual, not whether a person has perceptual disturbances and hears voices when no one's around. Yes. I was just going to say, with her question there, when we're in heaven, we're going to have the body like Adam and Eve had. We're going to be perfect. And unlike him, we're going to have the character which is why we're going to stay constant That's right. in our lives in heaven. That's right. And that character is something we experience and develop in unity with Christ here and now. But That's the, the challenge. We will still be able to choose rebellion. Oh, we, yes. we, we, our freedom is never taken away from us. Exactly. Yeah. We won't, but we'll have the ability to. Yeah. Tim, yes. when we talk about <clears throat> maturity of character, it seems that it's always in a positive sense. That if you're mature in character you're leading to something better versus someone who is is at a level of, that uses Satan's principles. Do they mature at all in character? No, it actually they actually devolve in character. The character becomes actually the character changes. Always a positive. They mature into an evil character. Yeah, the character. Well, if you want to put it that way, as I was using maturity in the positive sense, but yes, you can have something mature in a negative way if you want to use it just as a growth statement. Okay, sure. But yes, the character is constantly developing in the one way or another. Let's move on with this because we're talking about Christ. If he would have come as this being at age 30 and simply shed his blood at age 30, you know, 30 and not had lived that whole childhood, you're exactly right. He would never have overcome and developed that perfect character. Um, What is the basis of life? All life in the universe is created to operate on? Okay, we've talked about this. This is nature. This is not just simply a warm feeling. It's actually a principle of giving and beneficence that life is designed to operate upon. And you can look in nature and see this. One example I'm only going to give, when you give your breath, you're giving carbon dioxide to the plants, and the plants give back oxygen to you. And if you decide you don't want to be part of the circle of giving, if your body made carbon dioxide, it's yours, and you have a right to keep it, and you're not giving it away anymore, the only way to do that is to stop breathing and to die. All life is created to operate on this principle of never-ending giving, free giving. And it's when we take and hoard and and hold for ourselves. The Dead Sea. The Dead Sea receives water from the Jordan River. It gives nothing away. And therefore, it is a salt sea and it's dead. Nothing lives. Because water that doesn't flow stagnates and everything and it dies. It's only in giving is there life. And when we're takers, this principle breaks the circle, the very foundation of life. And this is why death comes. The wages of sin is death. So we understand that when Adam and Eve infected themselves, they infected themselves, they, they removed the law of love as the operating system from their heart, and they infected themselves with what Paul calls the law of sin and death. And the law of sin and death in the world today is known as survival of the fittest. Watch out for number one. Do what you have to do to get self ahead. Take, hoard, exploit, kill others, whatever you have to do. And this is the principle that brings death. This principle itself is incompatible with life. 
And it's only because God has been interceding. We know what intercession is. God has been interceding with the destructiveness of sin, with the principalities and powers of darkness, with the forces of evil to hold death at bay to give opportunity for all of us to experience reconciliation, healing, and being restored back into unity with the law of love. And so all humans descended from Adam are infected with this condition. Psalms 51 talks about it. Romans 3 talks about it. Um, This is why Paul says in Romans that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though no one broke a command like Adam did, because the law wasn't given until Sinai, but yet death was still reigning. So these people weren't guilty for doing something wrong, but they were still dying. Why were they still dying? Well, an HIV-infected man, an HIV-infected woman gets together and have a kid, and the kid's born HIV-infected. Did the kid do anything wrong? No. But does he still have the full weight of the disease to deal with? And if something doesn't intervene to heal him, the kid's going to die from the disease. That's mankind. We were all born in this terminal condition. Even though we're not guilty for it, it's not our fault. If we don't do something, if we don't accept the remedy, and so Christ came to heal, to fix, to save. Save means heal the actual sickness. So, and I'm going to read to you um, a couple of quotes. This first one is Review and Herald, April 5, 1898. It says, The law of God, as presented in the Scriptures, is broad in its requirements. Every principle is holy, just, and good. The law lays men under obligation to God. It reaches to the thoughts and feelings, and it will produce conviction of sin in everyone who is sensible of having transgressed its requirements. If the law extended to the outward conduct only, men would not be guilty in their wrong thoughts, desires, and designs. But the law requires that the soul itself be pure and the mind holy, and that the thoughts and feelings may be in accordance with the standard of love and righteousness. Now, why does the law require this? Because God sets the rules, and, if, and he's got the right to, to set these standards, and if you don't, well, he, you know, he has the right to enforce penalties, because he's the, the rule maker and the creator, and it's his right to, to... Is that why the law requires this? No. Because that's the only way we can really be healed. Why does the law of respiration require you to breathe? Way things work. Why does the law of nutrition require you to eat? Why does the law of, hyd- of hydration require you to drink? You say the law requires that you breathe. Well, that's, that's a lot of rules. I shouldn't be required to do that. I'm a free being. All these requirements. You see? And so when she says the law of God requires it, it's not an imposition. It's the design. We're designed to operate on love. And if we don't breathe, we die. If we don't drink, we die. If we don't eat, we die. If we don't love others, we die. That's what happens. So, could mankind, once out of harmony with this law, recreate it within himself? All by himself. No, and so this is what Jesus did. So the second quote, Desire of Ages 762. And this one, i got to tell you, somehow our ministers in this church have... Yeah, I don't know. It's like, poof! Just don't see it. But listen to this. It's powerful. It says, The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. What's the law? That we're perfectly loving. That's it. That we're operating in harmony with the law that life is based operate upon. That's the requirement. But we can't do it. But Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus, they have remission of sins that are past. Now, notice the remission of sins here. 
of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Notice, we don't have remission because the payment has been made, because God has been appeased, because blood has been applied. We have remission through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God, imbues us with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ, and God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Notice this is regenerative, healing, and the Bible text, create me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. I will write my laws in your hearts and minds. We will have the mind of Christ. The heart will be circumcised by the Holy Spirit. Um, it will take out the stony heart, put in the heart of flesh. The Bible is, is filled, replete, with the teaching that the plan of salvation is a plan of recreation, regeneration, healing, restoring within us godliness of character that we couldn't do for ourselves. So metaphorically, we were all infected with HIV and we were all dying. Christ came, born of a woman under law, and so his humanity is affected with HIV. But his father was God himself, and so he has a super immune system that does battle with the HIV and overcomes, and now he is HIV free, and he has antibodies that will cure all who accept it, and he will give freely to all who will accept and will be downloaded into your body, and the HIV will be purged from you. He will give freely his character his methods. And you notice, he will do this in us. And so when people talk about, oh, you're a perfectionist, you're teaching perfection. Well, if you were sick and you went to the doctor because you were dying with cancer, would you say, Doc, I only want to be 80% healed. Don't perfectly heal me now. Okay, don't we want to be perfectly healed? See, the pressure is not on us to be perfect. The pressure is on God to heal us perfectly. See, Christ has already done the work. He's already developed the perfect character. Now it's simply a matter of us accepting the remedy and allowing the Holy Spirit to finish the work in us. And that is his justice. That's yes. Justice. That's, and justice means? Same root. Justify. Righteousness. Justify. Righteousness. When you justify the margins on your... Maybe. See, I didn't justify these margins. and So you can see they're all kind of ragged. <laughs> but if I justified them, how would they look? All straight. So the things that are put out out of line would be put in line. The things that are out of harmony would be put in harmony. The things that are out of bounds would be put back in bounds. And so in this problem in sin, what is it that's out of harmony, out of line, that needs putting back in harmony, back in line? There we are. Our hearts and minds, our characters, you see? And so this whole idea of justification that people have with Jesus dying in order to appease the Father so we can be set right with God so he won't be mad at us is backwards. Jesus died in order to set us right, to restore us back into perfect accord with the law of love, to put us back in harmony with the principle that life was designed to operate upon. Yes? I think the one phrase that's helped me so much is, sin is not a legal problem. Yeah, of course it's not. But, but that doesn't mean it's not a transgression of the law. So if it's not a legal problem, but it's a transgression of the law, how do we balance those two? Well, if you smoke... If you do drugs, if you inject yourself with, with uh, toxic chemicals, are you breaking the laws of health? Yes. Yes. Does that mean you're now in legal trouble? No. <laughs> toxic chemicals like Drano. Okay? <laughs> okay? No, you're not going to get arrested for injecting yourself with Drano. Okay? But you're breaking the laws of health. So there is a, a law problem here. But it's not this, and the difference, the difference that happens is people see the law of God in one of two ways. They see it as an imposed law put in force by the powerful ruler of the universe, or we understand it as a natural law 
that life is designed to operate on. Now, if it's an imposed law and you break it, well, then, in, then there has to be impositions of penalties in order for the law to be enforced. And the one who has to impose those penalties was the one who made the law. And so we have God imposing penalties on lawbreakers. If it's a natural law that life is designed to operate upon and you break it, then there's natural consequence, pain, suffering, ruin, and death. And we have the lawgiver who designed life intervening to heal, to restore, to protect, to regenerate. Which version do you like better? This healing law. Yes. So, I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, the evidence is just overwhelming. Okay, so back to the Bible, though. We read that quote from Desire of Ages, but let's give a biblical text to support it because we always want to have a Bible basis for these things. In Hebrews 5, 8, 9, it says, Although Christ, he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him. Think about that. Once made perfect. He learned obedience through what he suffered, and then once made perfect, he became the source of salvation. I thought he was always perfect. I thought he was born perfect. What's his made perfect? What's his learned business? What we're exactly talking about here. He was born sinless. But he had to develop character. His character was not warped. His character was not sinful. But his character was undeveloped, unmatured. He had to, to choice by choice, moment by moment, develop that perfect character in his human experience. That's what it means. He, was te- he, he learned obedience for what he suffered and once made perfect, became the source of salvation. Let's see. Maybe we'll skip, we'll skip to, to Tuesday's lesson because we want to talk briefly about prayer. And we had a whole thing about prayer. But we're talking about Jesus lived by prayer. And the question I have is, what is prayer? What is the purpose of prayer? Well, what different types of prayers are there? And I thought about this. And are there ritual prayers done by rote? Yes. There are... You know, fathers and the Hail Marys. and How about prayer beads that people will actually pray by just running their hands up and down the beads? I don't know if you know that. They have those. Um, phylacteries. Anybody know what a phylactery is? This is actually out of the Old Testament. What they did was they'd take little scrolls, they'd write prayers on them, they'd wrap them up, put them in a little box, and they would tie the box on their forehead, and they'll tie one on their arm. You can actually see some Hasidic Jews today that will walk around with these boxes tied with leather straps on their forehead, and the boxes tied on their arms, and they have prayers in them. This is prayer. And then, when I was a kid, um, I, I don't remember what club I belonged to, but I belonged to one of these clubs that would send you these like cool things from all different other cultures of the world, and uh, you'd get them in the mail. And I got one of these little prayer spinners that had uh, ri- written in like uh, Chinese or, or some uh, language like that, had prayers written on it, and it had a little weight, and it was on a stick, and you could spin it. And every time it spun around, you sent a prayer to God. Okay? You just spin it. Prayer, 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 prayer. Just, and you could spin that thing, and you're just praying all day. Okay? <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I had one of those, okay? Um, when you think about prayers like this, what do you think about such prayers? Frivolous. What, 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 what are the purpose of these kind of prayers? Why do people send these kind of prayers along? To gain merit. Say, say that louder. To gain merit. To gain merit, to earn points. Change the mind of... To influence the, the deity. Yeah, influence the God. Yeah, to appease, to, to do penance, to make payment. Well, what kind of a God requires such a thing? Doesn't these types of prayers indicate something about the kind of God they're, they're relating to? Yeah. Are all prayers to God the same? Does it make a difference to whom one prays? What is prayer when it's actually directed to the true God? What, or what should it be? A conversation with God. Okay, and so when you think about conversations with your friends, what kind of conversations do you have? I really wanted to have a conversation with you guys, but we got off on some other stuff. But don't you have conversations of thanks, 
conversations that are requests. You have conversations of empathy. Do you guys, by the way, ever talk to God and empathize with him? Tell him, Lord, I am so sorry. My heart just goes out to you that you've had to put up with all of us so long. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, conversations of empathy with God. Yes. We were having a discussion last night. Is there a difference between praying to God and praying to Jesus? That's a great question. Yeah, it's a wonderful question. Um, can there be? Yes. How about if you pray to Jesus and Jesus is a loving, trusting friend who gave his life for you and you're praying to him to protect you from an angry and wrathful God? Do, do, do some people do it that way? Would that be a difference? Yeah. Now, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen. The Father. The Father and I are one. Yes. They're one in unity, purpose, and method, principle, but yet they're still two separate beings. So Jesus taught us to pray our Father. Paul said, Abba, Daddy. Okay? And so, yeah, I do think there is a difference. Even when we understand God rightly, they are still two separate individuals. And having a conversation with Jesus, even though he is in one union, harmony, character, everything the same as the Father, is still not quite the same as having a conversation with the Father directly. And so, both. Absolutely. Talk to him both. I mean, think about it. You have two infinite beings, both loving, both on your side. I mean, remember Romans chapter 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? I mean, God is on our side. Jesus is on our side. I mean, let's, let's like talk to them both. Yeah. And then the Holy Spirit too. Absolutely, because the Holy Spirit's on our side. Romans 8, 30, uh, 24. So conversations of encouragement. How about venting and complaining? Do you ever vent and complain to a friend? you ever vent and complain to God? Yes. yes. How about protesting, crying, laughing? How about interceding? And we're going to have a whole discussion on intercessory prayer that we don't have time for. Uh, I'm so sorry, we're just out of time. But we need to understand these different types of prayers, don't we? Let's talk on intercessory prayer. Yes. Intercessory prayer. I'd love to have that. One last question. Well, sometimes people just have been raised to say, Dear Jesus, or people say, Our Heavenly Father. And I don't really think that they're putting thought into the fact that, okay, I'm going to, like, Kids are friends, you know, kids, for instance, they're not thinking, I'm going to pray to Jesus instead of the Father. But they both are going to hear it, and they're both, like, how God do knows, the Holy Spirit's, uh, the Bible says in Romans 8.24 that the Holy Spirit knows our hearts and communicates our, our true heart's intent to God with groans and utterings that we can't even understand. And so, um, if somebody is praying and they don't use the name Jesus, they use the name Yahweh, they use the name um, Rose of Sharon, Lily of the Valley, our heavenly high priest. I mean, it really doesn't matter what name you call, but the heart's intent's the same. Isn't that right? Okay? Yeah, it's the focus of the heart. Okay? Our gracious heavenly Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we come before you, and we just want to thank you that you are all united as one, that there is no variance between you, that you love us fully, completely. And we ask now that you will recreate that kind of love in us, that we will love you and we will love each other as a community as fully as you love us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.